Hello and welcome back to the Able Lifestyle Podcast. Today we have Mark Overall, or he's better known as the uh, coach behind the goggles, ex-pro footballer, ex-semi-pro footballer, national scout, goalkeeping coach. I mean, you've done it all. You've, you've been there. You've done everything. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hello. Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No worries. Thank you for coming on because um, every time I look at your Instagram at the minute, I just go, is there anything this man has just not done? And you just continually push forward and you try and better yourself and you try and do more adventurous things and have more of an impact on the sort of community and the environment. And I mean, I've, I've written down a list here of things you've accomplished and been through. And I'm just like, wow, this is a guy that I need to get on and tell his story because it's going to have a massive impact on a lot of people. And not only that, a lot of people don't go through what you potentially go through. So it might be interesting for them to hear about it. And especially in the pro footballing scene, a lot of people are, it's a dream growing up as a kid to be that pro footballer and be in that stage. So I don't f- quite think they understand the harshness of that world and what actually goes on. So um, I think the best place to start is sort of growing up as a kid, because I know you had a sort of troubled upbringing and just thinking about it, I might, I believe it probably had a massive impact on your later life and your future yeah. and probably is a reason behind why a lot of things might have happened later on. So do you want to talk to me about your childhood, how your relationship with your family was and what you were like as a kid? Yeah, I'm I'm the um, the oldest of I've got a brother and sister, so I'm the oldest child. I grew up with a mum and dad up to the age of ten. Um, the first sort of ten years of my life, my my dad suffered massively with alcoholism, and he was quite he was quite abusive with that alcoholism, and we managed to escape from him when we, when I was aged at ten, and we moved um, out to a completely different area, and with a mum, and it it was a struggle. I mean. We went to school, we had to go through access visits with my father and eventually they got stopped. So life sort of changed for me when I got, you know, when I, when we moved away from him, it got a lot better. But I mean, the first 10 years of my life, I can't really, I haven't really got any happy memories of that whatsoever. I mean, I've been asked by my mum, can't you remember this? Can't you remember that? I said, I can't. Yeah. The only thing I can remember is a bad, bad things that happened. Even myself, I struggle to remember childhood memories at the best of times and I had a, a pretty amazing childhood. So to for your story and how your childhood and how difficult it was, I'd hate to imagine how sort of, like you say, how bad your sort of memory is. But you talk about your relationship with your mum, got a very strong relationship and I imagine she's been quite a positive influence and quite an amazing character for you growing up. Yeah, I've got a really, really strong relationship with my mum. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I put her through hell through life, I have. And she stood by, stood by me all the time. So throughout it, she stood by me. That's what mums do best. Yeah. No matter what you throw their way, no matter what you sort of call them, no matter how you treat them, they're always going to turn back with a smile on their face and give you a hug. And I think having such the strong, supportive character in your mum helped you massively through such, almost like your worst time growing up as a kid. And I can imagine that alcoholism with your dad, probably led on to your sort of later life story and things later on to come but having that mum and that supportive sort of side and supportive character and that I suppose she was a safety blanket for you at times what sort of characteristics did she have and what sort of things did you see from your mum? My mum always would listen to me she'd always you know I I used to rant a lot (laughs) she'd always be there she'd always listen to me and and she'd always tell me how it is as well. So she would listen to me, but she would tell me how it is. And I think that caring side of her and that listening side, I've tried to bring that into my life because, you know, she's the best teacher I've ever had. And, you know, like I said, I owe my life to my mum. She is the reason why you're sort of here today, she, I suppose. She, she's and a massive, massive reason behind that. Yeah. I suppose 
having that sort of troubled figure in your father growing up was awfully difficult and like I said it led on to a lot of things that happened sort of later in your life and then going into your adolescence you sort of struggle with home the homeless side what sort of happened there it, I had an accident when I was 14 on my knee. I ended up in a wheelchair. Yeah. And How did that sort of happen? I was in Scouts. Okay. And we were camping. Oh, wow. And we were cooking and we had a, we were, I think we were doing sausages at the time in a, sauce, in a frying pan. Yeah. The frying pan was uneven at the bottom and it tipped over onto my knee. Oh. So the boiling hot fat ripped through my, ripped through into my, sort of all over my right knee, ripped through my clothes, ripped through the nerves. Oh, wow. And then ended up being taken to Oxford, a local hospital in Oxford. Yeah. And at that, on that evening, they said, no, no, it's fine. They stuck a needle in my knee, and I couldn't feel it at Ooh. all. I mean, a lot of people don't like needles at the best no, of times. No, exactly. <laughs> I don't like them. I, I looked away, but they told me what they'd done, and I couldn't feel anything. But I went back the next day, and they told me within an hour, you need surgery. And just like that? You... Yeah, literally, I was, I believe it was a few hours later, I was being operated on. And then I was in hospital for five, five days to a week. I had yeah. a skin graft on to take the skin off my left thigh and put it on my right knee. And then I was stuck in a wheelchair. At wow. home because I obviously couldn't move upstairs or anything. Yeah. And sad, sadly, our house got burgled when I was being on sur- in surgery as well, which is crazy. Can't quite catch catch a break at this point no. in life. And I mean, how old were you at this point? Fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. Wow. What what a childhood you've had already. Like, it's even more that adds to your amazing story and something that happened in people's lives, and they'll be like, ah, oh, almost have that victim mentality and mindset. Yeah. But for you, it's just you you carry on pushing forward and you keep trying to move forward and how did the football inside come about because you've had this sort of troubled upbringing were you playing football at this time yeah I was playing football so I only really started playing football when we moved away from my father so okay that was the only time quite a late bloomer almost because yeah, a lot I of ki- a lot of kids start when they're four or five nowadays even earlier than that you've got you know academies picking up three-year-olds and it's just like hang on a minute is this really gonna help them have the best sort of playing career my, my dad wasn't really into football nor was my mum so it was only when we moved to school and i got into the school team and i started playing up front so I was, you know the tall lanky one i go up front yeah yeah the, the the height certainly uh helps in that regard that's something that sort of hindered my footballing career should i say <laughs> but how did you sort of get into the pro pro game and pro side were you in an academy when you were growing up as an adolescent i had a brief time at milton mills academy yeah and then when the injury happened it that ended that for me. Yeah, so you came back out of the yeah. game, I suppose. And then I had the time when I was in and off the streets. I was in and out of hostels for a few years. And then I ended up, my first pro deal was in 2005. So I was, I was 23. So quite almost yeah, late in some really, regard. Really, really late. Yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is really late. It's sort of a, a dream story, really, to be picked up at age 23. And you talk about that homeless side and yeah. being in and out of sort of shelters and being in and off the streets. What impact did that have on your life and how did that almost happen? Because you said you moved away with your mum, away from your sort of dad. How did that sort of come about? So when I had the accident, when I went back to school, I got really badly bullied. Yeah. I was getting pushed over and obviously the skin wasn't settling on my, my knee very well. I was getting I was getting bullied left, right and centre. So what I used to do, my mum used to drop me off, I used to walk out of school. Did I she didn't... know this was going on at no, all? No, not till the police were knocking on the door and say, your son's missing. Yeah. So I'd get on the train and go into London. So I could be in London two or three days as a 14, 15-year-old sort of on the streets or in cafes. And I started mixing with the wrong crowd. And that's where the drinking started happening. Because what, what, what sort of age did you start that drinking problem? 14, 15. 14, 15. Yeah, probably was that, more like 15 when I, got, when I started going in and off the streets. Was that purely from the crowd you were hanging yeah, around with at the time? Yeah, from that. Yeah, I hadn't really drunk anything before. As my mum said, she was a model student before the accident. It was the accident was the turning point in your life. 
I suppose that stuff as a kid, you never really actually processed and understood what was going on and it didn't really have an instant effect on you. But I suppose seeing your dad drinking so much, the second alcohol come available for you as an adolescent kid, it subconsciously, I imagine, had quite an impact on you, might have been the reason why you started then drinking at that age. And I presume it was just a, you fell into the wrong crowd just by chance and just by unlucky. Yeah, it's just met people I met on the street and, you know, they used to say, oh, you're the youngest, you've got the innocent-looking face, go into the local um, off-licence. We used to go in there at 5am. When you started sort of drinking, was it trying to be cool and trying to keep up with these sort of guys you were hanging out with? Yeah, I think so. I felt like I was part of a crowd, so uh, part of a good crowd. That's how it felt to me. I thought these older, you know, these older guys, they want, you know, they, they want to know me, they, they don't care about anything that's happened in my life. We just have sort of a, like a little safety group on the streets together. You say the word safety. I was going to talk about that, actually, because yeah. I suppose with such a sort of troubled upbringing and such a unsafe home, should I say, having that sort of safety crowd gave you a bit of importance and gave you that safety net and gave you that sort of support group that you never had, even though it wasn't necessarily the most positive for you. At that moment in time for you as a kid, especially running away from school, I imagine that felt like it was quite an important moment for you and gave you that sense of security. 100% because I never really had, I wasn't really someone who could make friends easy. So that was my first sort of mixture with, you know, people who wanted something to do with me. And at the time I thought it was a good thing, obviously late in my life it it, it wasn't a good thing. I realised that. But yeah. At the time I needed it in my life. And, you know, even though it was such a dangerous world to be in, like I said, I didn't think at the time that it was you're also still growing up at this point aren't you yeah very much you're still you're still learning about yourself and learning about the world and i mean i'm 24 now and i'm still i'm still learning about myself really so you know you're still almost 10 15 years before your time and you start mixing with this crowd and i suppose the destruction didn't really start there as such because then you found your way back into football yeah i found my way back into football i managed to get myself out of that situation even though i was still I was, I was still drinking, but it wasn't. I hadn't recognised it as a problem at that stage. I didn't recognise it as a problem too much later on in life until I realised what I was doing to myself. And I'm having shots to go out before I go out in the morning. That's when I started realising maybe it's a slight issue for me drinking. How much were you sort of drinking before you got back into football, would you say? How often? I wasn't an everyday drinker. I was more like a binge drinker. So I could go like three weeks without touching alcohol and then I could blow everything I had in my pocket. So if I had or in my bank, I could have 300 quid. I could go out and blow that in three days. Yeah. And then I'll come home. So that would be the binge. I'll just binge what i got on me. Yeah. Whatever money you've got yeah, is what, just... On, whatever got me, I'll just drink all day for three days, four days, whatever. It's all the money run out and then come back to reality. So you sort of started to slip away from this sort of drinking world with all this sort of negative crowd as such and you got yourself back into football. How did that sort of come about? Well, I got myself in trouble. I got in trouble in 2004. Yeah, and it was when I came when that happened. I ended up going on probation for a couple of years. Yeah, but during that time, I ended up signing my the first pro deal as well. Oh wow! So that that drinking had affected that period when I got in trouble, and then I sort of got myself out, and I managed to control the drinking. I thought I was controlling the drinking. I didn't think anyone could see it, but it found out people could see it all the time. Yeah, but to me, it wasn't really an issue. But I was I wasn't like like I said because I wasn't drinking every day. I felt like I could control it. I suppose it didn't almost feel like a problem and it wasn't almost affecting your life as well at this point because you can still t- tip up on a Saturday and perform. Exactly. I, I mean, I could tip up every day for training and perform. It was it was fine. I, I, so I didn't see it as a problem at all. I thought it was quite normal to have a few 
shots of vodka and you know how much are you sort of drinking well, well like i say i used to binge so whatever i had in my pocket it just was literally in my bank at that time you know I, it got to a point when i got married that my my ex-wife used to control how much money i would have and like she would control my bank account because you know i could blow everything didn't want to get an out of control i suppose yeah so you got 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 back into football after sort of a troubled time yeah and what's that being like getting into the sort of pro game it's a bit of a shock to the system because I never expected it to happen and I knew it wouldn't happen in this country. So I knew I could only go abroad and to, because, you know, I'm only six foot one myself. Yeah. In this country, to keep it, you've got to be six foot three, six foot four yeah. to make it at the pro level. So I knew it couldn't happen here. So it was a bit of a shock to the system, new country, new culture. Where did you go? Um, Lithuania. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was amazing. I loved, yeah. I loved every minute. I loved the family feel of it. it. It was absolutely first class. What's a sort of different culture like out in Lithuania? I, I it, to me, it was more much more of a family feel, especially in the football club. It was more of a family feel. You know, it's a very religious country, which yeah. suited me because I'm a Catholic myself. So it's very much a Catholic country. Did that limit your drinking at all? Being a Catholic country and having Not that sort really, of family in side. Cult, in for my experience, in the culture, there's a lot of there's a lot of vodka about and drinking about. So did that stem it a lot further? I think so because I felt to me I wanted to adapt to the culture very quickly. So if they were having a few drinks, I'd go out and have a few drinks. And again, not realizing how bad my issue was becoming, to me it was normal. It's amazing the sort of culture and how much that can have an impact on you. And I think as I spoke about it on a previous episode about the drinking culture in the UK, it's almost a. Um, I imagine it's the same over in Lithuania and sort of those sort of countries of if you're not drinking, your class is a weird one. Your yeah. class is an odd one out. It's why you're not drinking, and. I went to a Christmas party and I was the only one not drinking because of all the marathon training I'm doing at the minute. And everyone's like, why are you not drinking for? Like, why are you being boring? Why aren't you coming to town? I'm like, I'm training for this marathon. I can't afford to drink. I'm at this point where I need to prioritise my training and prioritise my health. And I don't know why that's a thing. Yeah. Why Why have you got to be the odd one out that's the one that's actually trying to prioritise themselves, prioritise their health and mental well-being? Because... I don't know how you feel now, which we can touch on later down in the podcast episode. But for me, like, alcohol is such a depressant and sort of numbs who I am as a person. And yeah. it detriments me training. Like I say, I know it can stay in your system for like four or five days, mm. even regardless of how much you drink, it can still be there and have a sort of detrimental impact. So I imagine that sort of culture out in Lithuania was tough to adapt to. And you almost felt that you had to adapt to get that sort of drinking and drinking more. Yeah, I'm, like I say, because I was, I was drinking anywhere here, I just felt like it was a normal life there for me. So even though, you know, I didn't feel I had to adapt too much to it, I felt like I was just joining the crowd and, you know, having a few drinks. And then, like I say, when I'm having a few shots by myself at home, yeah, I thought, you know, what's wrong with this? Yeah, just, you know, I'm, tw I'm 23, 24. It's, I can handle this. It's just yeah, a couple of drinks. So exactly. Yeah. What was it like sort of playing in front of crowds and playing in the sort of pro scene? Because you played in the top division in Lithuania. Yeah, and then in Poland as well. So I loved it. I mean, I, I zone out really quickly. And I've, I'm, I've still been into my coaching now. I can zone out from a situation and not hear anything around me, which is a way I wanted to play. I wanted to zone out. I didn't need to hear all the noise behind me. And obviously, when you're playing in front of a crowd, you can't hear your teammates because you're hearing a crowd. So <laughs> I like to control the that zoning out period so I can concentrate on what I'm doing on the field. So absolutely loved it. Um, any good memories to talk about? Victories. Any 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 victory is a good one for me. So you're, I'm, you're... A, I'm a clean I'm a clean sheet co like coach who lives on clean sheets. I was a goalkeeper who lived on clean sheets. That was my life. So I couldn't 
sort of pinpoint anything except for clean sheets and winning and that's 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 me you got quite the sort of serial mentality when it comes to winning haven't you I, I, it's it's life for me you know football's about winning yeah and that's I just mean, my mentality to it don't think there's anything wrong with that because no. you only learn from when you sort of lose almost especially with kids growing up nowadays and sort of new culture around the footballing world it's uh results are irre- irrelevant they don't matter and it's like they do because when you lose you learn and why would you go into something half-hearted why would you go into something half-assed if you're not there to win uh, okay yes we do need to enjoy everything we do have you there to if you're not there to win what's the point in doing it What's the point of not being at your absolute 110% best every single week and every single day of what you're doing? Exactly, and especially when you get to senior level. For me, you know, senior level, football's about winning. I mean, as a kid, you're developing. I can understand that in youth football. When you get to senior football, it's about three points. That's it, all it's about for me. It's, it's a business. It's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world. You've got to keep up with that. And were there any sort of tough pressures in this sort of environment in the pro game? Not so much as a player, probably more when you're a gaffer or a coach. I think all the pressure's on them. I mean, for us as players, it's, you know, you decide if you're going to turn up. That's when, even coaching now, I'm, I'm not a big talker. And the change, you're not a big talker. For me, players shouldn't need that. They, enough is to go out on that point and get go on that pitch and get them three points and get that win. And that's how my mentality is now. So I've never been that big talker, even as a coach, like I say, because... That should come from within. I suppose me. as a player, you can control yourself and what you do. Whereas as a coach, it's everything's out of your hands within a sort of reason. That's it's that. down to the players to tip up on a Saturday and perform because there's only so much you can do during the week and you know on the weekend to change that result. And for me as a coach, um, I'm quite quiet as well actually on the sidelines at times. I'm more I'm more of a motivator rather than a sort of you know shout it loud every single minute of the game and. Some people say to me, why are you so quiet? Like, you should be having an impact on this game. And I'm like, if I'm trying to coach on match day, yes, sure, there's little details I do need to add. But if I'm trying to win this game on a match day, I haven't done my job during the week because that should all that preparation should be done before the match day. And now it's down to the players to tip up and perform. Exactly that. And the other reason I don't do it is if I start telling my keeper too much information or other players too much information, they start to overthink it. And then you can see that on the pitch and you're thinking... That's my fault. I shouldn't have said that because now they're thinking more about that than they are those. They're distracted from getting the job done, exactly. don't they? So for me, you know, we've got a gaffer that will do the talking. We've got another coach that will do the talking. For me, I don't need to say too much. I could just stay quiet and I'll talk at the end. I mean, I, the keepers, I'll let them think about the game afterwards. I don't really want to talk to them too soon after. I want them to let have them to have a think and then maybe you can talk on, ma- on training nights. It's to process the what they've sort of been through and exactly. to actually understand and also taking the emotions and everything they've been through. Um, so you had a couple of years in the pro game, enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, really good memories, sort yeah, of playing no. abroad. Fantastic. I mean, it's it's a very small percentage of players that make it anyway, but to then play abroad as well, I imagine that was such an amazing feeling and such a amazing accomplishment, especially sort of where you've grown up and with the things you've been through already so far. It was definitely, especially when I knew I couldn't make it here. There's no way on earth I was going to make it in England because of my height. Yeah, and having to go abroad, you know, I recommend it to any sort of football to go abroad if they can because you know you can't beat experiences like that play going abroad traveling is like an amazing thing let alone to play in the pro scene abroad i can imagine that takes you into that very small even like percentile top bracket and like i say it's, it's such a strange culture in the uk especially in like i know in academies they look for the sort of physical monsters they look for the six foot four brutes that are you know usain bolt speed and 
they don't actually look at the sort of smaller players. I mean, you look at Lionel Messi, the height he is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've known amazing players. I've known amazing goalkeepers that have been turned away because they're too small. But technically, they're they're a thousand times better than the big brutes that they've chosen. Yeah, 100%. and I know in three, four years' time, five years' time, this smaller player is going to be a thousand times a player that this big brute is because they're never going to have the technical ability that this lad's had ten years of specialised coaching in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's seeing that sort of difference between the two. So you had a couple of good years abroad, yeah, and then yeah, a couple of good years, and then I was playing for a club called Savalki, which was second division, so I was loaned out. And yeah, I nearly lost my eye playing football, and that ended my career literally. A click of the fingers ended it for me. How did that sort of come out, come so across and happen? I went to take a cross at the back post. I took, uh, I, I deflected it. As I deflected, I was being clattered without being seen. Well, I couldn't even. It was on my blind side. I couldn't even see him. I've cracked my head against the goalpost, and I ruptured all the nerves in my left eye. Do you remember that moment happening? I can sort of remember bits of it. I didn't think it was as bad as it turned out to be. But within a few weeks, I was told my vision would never, ever be good enough in and that eye. What What did that, like, how did that make that feel to you? Oh, it, devastating. I mean, I could, it took a long time for me to take it in. But the only word I could think of is devastating because that, that was, football's my life. It's my passion. It's my world. It's everything to me. Not only that, you've sort of had that troubled upbringing and you've escaped that to this amazing time abroad. You feel like you've sort of found your place in this world. You found this place in your life and you've escaped all your trouble and you found something so good. And then for that moment to happen, I could imagine it was, like you say, so devastating. It feels like your life was ending. Really? You know, from something like that, which is a complete freak accident. That, they, that player's got every right to challenge me. It's fine. But for me, you know, for what happened, hit my head against a post. You know, if I had been another yard forward, it would never have happened. Or being a yard back, it would never have happened. It was just... It's just a freak, like say a freak yeah. accident. You you can't script these things, can you? Exactly. So I suppose when that first happened, you didn't really initially process. No, I was sick very quickly. I was sick on the pitch. Okay. And I got told that was all part of it. And like I say, within a few weeks, I was back home. Yeah. And then just before Christmas and then trying to understand what the hell had just happened to me. But... What was the sort of outcome playing... Was it sort couldn't, of like couldn't play couldn't play at that level anymore? No, no. I got told I was never be able to play because the eyes not good enough. I mean, try to play cricket. I used to play a bit of cricket. Yeah, the eyes not good enough for that. Really? Yeah. yeah. And then what? To got released, I suppose, and be back home. Yeah, literally. And then I was back home and not knowing what to do whatsoever. Now what do you do? You sort of, I suppose, you lost a limbo. You sort of that's your passion, that's your drive, that's everything you've worked hard for, and exactly. you know you've escaped, let's say, a troubled childhood, and you found it, and now you're like, well, now what? Exactly. And I kept it so quiet as well. I mean, I didn't tell hardly anyone what happened. I just, I bottled it up, bottled it up inside. Kept it all to yourself yeah. and I suppose that sort of adds extra added pressure on your shoulders to then go find something else to, you know, make up for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, did you go and try and get back into the pro game at all? Did you try and go semi-pro no, after that? No, I didn't try to do anything. I, I actually, I met, a, um, I met a young lady who turned out to be my sort of girlfriend for a while in the January. Yeah. So I just got mixed up into that relationship. And yeah. everything else sort of disappeared, sort of the football side of it. It's amazing the sort of impact a partner can have on yeah. us. And it can almost sometimes take away who we are as a person and all the things we do and love. Yeah. Because we get so caught up in all the emotions and all the sort of lovey-dovey side. And sometimes it's not always positive. 
No, it turned out not to be positive. Because like it turned out drinking, I ended up drinking a lot more, and ended up in trouble in a few months later. Really? So you talk about getting into trouble a few months later. What sort of yeah, well, what sort of things happened? Well, when I met her, I was literally you know rock bottom. Yeah, I just fell in love with this girl straight away. Yeah, I thought she, I thought this girl was going to be my world. You know, I was proper, proper loved up. Yeah, she was my world. But then I also realised that we came from very different worlds. You know, very different backgrounds, and we were probably very much opposites. Yeah, I, I don't see people say opposites attract, but I oh, don't. I don't believe in. I know, because my ex partner, we were very, very opposite, and I thought that's what I needed at the time. I thought, oh, someone's going to calm me down, settle me down, you know chill me out a little bit because I'm very 24-7 always on the go but then you start to really realise about this person going I've actually got nothing in common with you how's this going to work where's the fun where's the enjoyment exactly I I, you know I was told like to to, uh, you know she told me you know when you go and see my grandparents don't use the word mate because it's not in our you know in our life you don't use that word and I was like you've got to change yourself and who you are and your personality I use that word all the time in my life I mean how can I not use that yeah, because such a friendly, friendly term to use. But I was so loved up that I was like, okay, I'll try. And I think that first time it slipped out once in these few hours. Yeah. But I had to really concentrate on what I was saying all the time. And it takes away that sort of self-personality and that yeah. true, actual, honest self of who you are. So you're sort of really sort of struggling at this point when you're out of football, and but you're in this relationship and you're drinking more. Was the drinking over the years just starting to slowly, progressively get worse, would you think? I think it got worse after the eye injury. Yeah. And I think that, that because I blocked all that out. Would you say um, it was a coping mechanism for you almost? I would, yeah, 100%. I've always been someone who, drink, who, who drinks to forget. Yeah. And obviously, you know, back then, I, that's how what I was doing. But now I look at it and think that's crazy. Yeah. You need to talk. You can't drink to forget. Forget It doesn't help. What did alcohol do for you then? Did you crave it at all during this time? I, yeah, I used to crave it. Yeah, I used to try, and when I was in that relationship, I was drinking a lot more. Like I say, you know, more than just binging. I was drinking like every couple of days. I was having a good old drink down the pub sort of thing with her, etc. Like you say, it's who you surround yourself yeah, with. It's exactly. who you almost become. I, got, I literally got involved in a different crowd. And yeah, like I say, I, I would say I was craving it. Even have a shot of vodka before I went out. Yeah. And that was my thing. I needed to have a shot before I went out. But I thought, okay, it's normal. But you sort of still function like normal? Yeah. Can yeah, you say? Can you say like most sort of people struggling with addiction with alcohol can still be functional? I think you can hide it very well. I yeah. mean, I think anyone struggling with addiction can hide it well, and I think you get clever in a in a way you get devious. Yeah. So you can you learn to hide things, but then you believe you're hiding it, and people from outside are looking at you, thinking he's got a problem, she's got a problem. Did anyone ever call you out on that? No, I mean, I've been asked to, you know, I've never been asked to calm down on my drinking, you know, maybe have a, go to the pub and have a, have a Coke. And I'm like, go to the pub and have a Coke. <laughs> yeah, no one, no one goes to the pub to have yeah. a Coke, do they? What are they going to think of me? <laughs> yeah, the, again, it comes down to the culture and sort of the stigmas and what people think of, why is he not drinking? I, I've spoke to someone in that crowd a few years ago and they, and I said, oh, I don't drink now. And she said, well, do you, do you smoke cigarettes? So I went, I don't do anything like that. She said, well, that's weird. That's they, weird. There you that's go. That's weird. Yeah. Why? Exactly. But for for that person, it was like oh, I run a bar. You know, I drink, I smoke, and and it was like, well, I don't. But she, well, that's 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 weird. Were you having sort of any side effects from the sort of overconsumption alcohol at this point, or is it your just body was used to it? I think my body was used to it. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't pinpoint anything up, any problems I was having or any side effects. What was your tolerance like at this point? Because I've never been a 
big drink. Let's say I've never been someone who could handle lots and lots of drink. I mean, I, I used to be drink spirits because I could handle spirits more than I could handle like lager. Yeah. But I would mix as well. I would have lager and spirits. But I could drink, sit in a bar and drink vodka all night. I feel like I'm fine to step outside the door and the fresh air hits me. Really? But then lager could have a few pints and I'll be, my head would be literally spinning on me. Yeah, so you just had this injury, you've started drinking more and then you found yourself getting into trouble? Yeah, what, because I didn't, wasn't working at yeah. the time and I wanted to treat this girl right and I knew she wanted to go out to all different things and, you know, we go to the bars and I need to find the money. Yeah. It got to, that pressure got way too much for me. And I, like I say, I was drinking, drinking. I started drinking without her even knowing about it. Really? I separated myself from my family, my mum. I moved out to a sort of a room in sort of High Wycombe, my local And local you had town. a strong relationship with your mum as well. Yeah, which is a really so, strong relationship. That's almost a trigger to say something is really wrong when you've sort of cut yeah. communication with your mum at this point. 100%. So I cut, I cut that communication for two or three months. I ended up into, into hospital because I wasn't feeling very well, so I had to get assessed. Yeah. It, it was all... My life was deteriorating. It was literally going downhill. Did you recognise that that was happening or was it no, just another day in the office for you? I didn't recognise it at all, no. Really? No, and then it got to such a point, and I, I can't even explain how my mind worked for this, but I was drinking every day and I thought, oh, I need money, I need money. And I haven't got any money. I can't even pay rent for this room because I've got no money. Like you say, that financial pressure adds up. Exactly. And it, you weren't talking to anyone at this point? No, I wasn't. The only person I was talking to was uh, my girlfriend, and a couple of other people in this group that obviously it all turned out to be quite a bad group for me to be in. And they don't really care about you deeply. They no. don't really care what's going to happen as, as such. Exactly. They, they would say, oh, yeah, Mark, you've got to do something to get money. You've got to do something to get money. You know, because it was just, you know, we probably we were all a bit immature, if I'm honest. Yeah. That pressure adds up. And yeah. actually, the episodes are sort of being released today. The guy I spoke to, he struggled with a lot of financial pressure and we spoke about the impact talking has and how important that is to say a problem shared is a problem solved or even a problem shared is a problem halved. And when you don't do that, you're just literally amounting that pressure on yourself and you just feel like you're getting deeper and deeper and deeper and that water's getting higher and higher and you're starting to slowly drown, I suppose. Exactly. So you, you just you just literally, your life, your life is going from here to there very, very quickly. So you started searching for money. Yeah, well, the way I dealt with it, and um, I I got absolutely wasted one night, and I walked into a shop. Yeah. And I will forever regret this for the rest of my life. I walked into that shop, and I demanded money from the cashier. And if someone had said to me, no, get out of the shop, I probably would have done, because I hate confrontation. Yeah. It's amazing but, you say that, because like you say you walked into the shop and demanded money. I didn't cover my face or anything. Just walked in. Just I, I, I had a hat on, but you know, in the end, I got face recognition. Face, I got done. You know, face recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Through the police, I didn't cover my face. I just walked in that shop, and wow. and I said, "You know, give me the money." And I walked in with, I walked in with a weapon. I didn't I had no intention of using it. If someone had said to me, I could say. Get out of my shop. I would have got out. Or put shop. that weapon down. You'd have, yeah. you'd have put the weapon I, down. I, but... I, I would have got out and, and left that shop and walked away. Yeah. But that person gave me money that day. Really? And, and then, then that was that. I, then because I was so wasted, I took my glasses off. I couldn't see a thing. Yeah. I was wearing glasses. I couldn't see a thing. I was blind as a bat. I couldn't <laughs> see a thing. Um, and I will regret that for the rest of my life. But I made that decision and 
like I said, I regret it for the rest of my life what I did. And that's also so out of character for you as well. Exactly. And I will, you know, even though I know I made a mistake, the alcohol plays such a big part of that. It almost changes. I was absolutely wasted. I was hammered at the time. I was driving a car, but I was wasted. It almost changes who you are as a person. It, for me, it changes just me who I am as a person. So I can imagine for you that did the exact same thing. So you got into trouble, you stole money from a shop. And I, I, I robbed another shop as well. Okay. And then I told, and then I was being encouraged because I told the group that I was in, like the, the, the sort of the guys in that group, and I go, oh yeah, Mark, go and do it. Yeah, it's good, a good idea. You know, it's good. Or we sit in the car. So I was, I was in that bad crowd. Now uh, we were all drinking together. And I was in the bad crowd. I told my girlfriend, and you know, she even she knew about it as well, and. They're not even being honest to you and being like, come on, you shouldn't be doing this. You know, I think she was more than, than anyone else, but I don't, and then I started hiding things from her. So it all happened over like a two-week period. And then it was, a, I believe it was a Friday, and and I bought the local newspaper. And my face is flashed across the newspaper on CCTV. So police want to speak to this guy about robberies happening in this area. And... Again, I was like, you know, what, 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 I didn't know what to think, really. And I, I spoke to my girlfriend, and she was like, I had to hide the paper from my mum and dad. Yeah. Because they would recognise you, and my friends would recognise you. But I had to hide it away. Because you were, I wasn't covered up, so it was CCTV footage of me. Did you think what you did, sort of that night, would lead to what happens next? No, no, not at all. No, Because, of, of, the, because of that drinking, yeah. I think it just put me in a completely different world. Just and I was not oblivious aware. to everything else around me. Really? At that time. Honestly, I swear to God, I was oblivious to everything else around me. It was just getting money to drink. I suppose that sole focus is getting that money to get those drinks in. Yeah. And also that sort of peer pressure from the people around you as well is the importance of everything in life is just irrelevant. The only importance at this moment in time is how good of a time can we have and how much alcohol can we drink? Exactly. And that is a sole focus and that's all you chased. So you, your face is on this newspaper, I suppose you can't hide away from that but I felt like I wanted to be caught because when I met this girl I also started smoking a few cigarettes at the time I never never done that but except for when I was on the strip you know in and out of the hostels when I was younger I started smoking a few cigarettes so what I did was smoke a cigarette outside the shop and the shop assistant saw me I smoked a cigarette I threw the butt on the floor yeah. and I walked in the shop so obviously my name got found up with DNA on the cigarette butt because that shop assistant said he smoked a cigarette outside the shop and I felt at the time and it's been t- said to me before, one of this, did you want to be caught? Did you know? And in my mind, I probably would have known that, even though I was oblivious, you know, I'm not silly, I knew it was wrong. But for me, thinking back now, even, you know, in the last few years, did that cigarette, but was that a cry for help for me? Because I knew my DNA would be on that cigarette. And also, it's also out of character for you. Like you say, you're not a smoker as well. Yeah, exactly. And... I would touch on this, everything happens for a reason. And like you say, it's almost like you knew what that was going to lead to. It's almost like that was your cry for help and that was your, yes, please, like, almost arrest me. Yeah, exactly. Because I reckon you knew that by being arrested, that would flip the switch for you to change. Yeah, 100%, yeah. And I said, I probably didn't think at the time, but like I said, I knew I needed, I, I probably knew I the reason I threw that cigarette butt was for a reason. And even though I didn't think about it at the time, I look back now and think there's something must have been in my head saying, 
see this just goes to show who you really are like your morals mm. your true morals come mm. through and who you actually are as a person because mm. i believe if you're like a good person these morals will show eventually and i feel that sort of act there is your inner actual good morals through your character that you were being because this isn't who you are as a person this is just your sort of the alcohol taking over and making you act that a character this is your good morals coming through going I'm almost wanting to get caught because this is going to bring out who I really am and this is going to help me lead back to the good person that I actually am inside. So got arrested, got found yeah, out eventually. How I got arrested was I was inside, I rented this room in this sort of house. I was inside my room, I got this bang, there was a bang on the door. And one of the people living in the house said, oh, Mark, someone's at the door for you. But who knows, I'm here. No one knew where, my family didn't know where I was. My mum's there. And my, um, my mum's partner at the time was there. I'm not sure if my sister was there. My mum was like, Mark, what's happening? What's going on? She, the fear in her face was like, what's going on? And turned out she managed to find out where my girlfriend was, lived, which lived not far away, and she told them where I lived. And she turned out and she said, you know, the police have been to my house this morning. Looking and they're asking you. where you are. And you, solicitors got involved, and they're giving you 24 hours to hand yourself in before they come looking for you. Oh, wow. I so, suppose that was a big shock to the system for you. Massive. My mum said, you come back to my house. Because I was, I was ready to go. I was ready. Okay, I'm, you know, that 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 reality kicked in, and I thought I'm going to big, big trouble here. That scarcity I'm kicked going, in. I'm going to prison here. Yeah. So I was ready to run them. I was like, no, come back to my house. I'm pinching in. I probably stayed the whole night to make sure I stayed at her house till we arranged for me to be handed in in the morning by solicitor at Highbury Police Station. Because I suppose that sort of first self defence kicks in, where you're like, I'm just going to run. Yeah. Now that was my that was my idea of problem to run. I'm going disappearing. It's amazing the sort of because you look at your childhood, it's that escapism. Then you go into your sort of adolescence, you're drinking the escapism. You then move country to play football. Again, you could look at it as escapism. Yeah. And then again here with this sort of drinking and the you turn into being arrested. The first thing is escapism. Yeah. So almost it's like this being arrested is probably the best thing that you can do because you're then what's going to happen is when you get arrested, and I imagine what it was like in prison for you is you now have to sit on what you've been through and you now actually have to process everything and you have to just sit in yourself, which I don't think a lot of people can actually do nowadays is I don't think they can sit in a room by themselves for four or five hours maybe, however long it may be, and just sit with their shit and just sit with who they are as a person. I think everyone that's like, I mean, I'm even guilty of this doom scrolling on phones through social media, always distracted, always had to be doing something. I don't think many people can actually just sit there and just go, I am me, you know, I went through something lately, I'm going to process this. I don't think people have a lot of self-reflection time. No, 100%. So you sort of handed yourself in? Yeah, I handed myself in. I was interviewed throughout the day, you know, typical advice from a no comment, no comment, no comment, let them, let you know what you've done, but let them prove it to you. Yeah. And it came towards the end of the day, and he said, no comment, no comment, I think you'll be walking out of here today. And I found out what they'd done. Then, then I was charged that evening. And they'd gone to my girlfriend's house and spoke to her parents, didn't know anything about this, and sat down and spoke to them. And, you know, she was, as she told, in her words, she told, I, I felt that I had to make a statement against you. And that was the final, because she knew everything, that was the final thing. So I was charged and I was... Next day, I was in Wicked Magistrate Courts. I was remanded to custody. The next day, I was put in 
um, Ellsbury Crown Court and then I was remanded to custody which was to Woodhill Prison in Milton Keynes which is a Cat A prison oh wow so it's you know it's a proper top of offenders go there so it's yeah so in the end it's sort of a girlfriend that you were uh, over, the, over the moon and head over hills yeah. for was the one that sort of gave you your sentencing yeah in, in, a, a, in a way in, yeah it was a really difficult time because she she didn't she didn't come and see me once. Do you feel it was almost like a betrayal? At the time, yes, but not now. I mean, I can understand how things happen. I can understand the pressure that she would have been put on, and she did the right thing. Yeah, of course, in 100%. the end, she done the right thing. Absolutely. And that's that's thing. I mean, I've spoken to her, like I said, a couple of times over the last sort of fifteen years. I've spoken to her. Yeah. And she's always felt, you know, I always said to her, "You done the right thing," and then you did the right thing. Um, did she know, feel guilty get... at all through this? I think she did at the time, and she did when I came out, because I, I, I spoke to her very soon after I came out and yeah. I met up with her. But, I, you know, I made it clear to her that you know, no reason to feel guilty. I, what I did was wrong. 100%. And, I, I, you know, I deserve to go inside. It's almost like showing true love is doing the right thing for you. Yeah. Regardless of how necessarily, like, bad it is quotation marks for you to be arrested and go to jail yeah showing true tough love is you being sentenced to prison yeah and talk about your time in prison what was that like oh a huge shock to the system massive shock i mean when i went to prison i ended up going into like an induction wing first where you know everyone comes into prison first goes on the wing and then normally they're two or three days to adjust to prison life and then from there i went to a normal wing yeah which i really really struggled on yeah. Um, my, my mental health deteriorated. I ended up taking overdoses on, they were putting me on antidepressants. I ended up taking overdoses on their storing tablets and taking tablets. I ended up in Milton Keynes Hospital under armed guard to, you know, get blood tests, etc. Really sure. I ended up calling out. They have somebody in prison called the Listeners who are trained by Samaritans. Yeah. So it's the same sort of So if you've got a problem, they come to your cell and they have a chat to you about certain things and you could end up on suicide watch or. Yeah. But I ended up, every time I took an overdose, I ended up being taken to healthcare wing. And, you know, that's where I, I the senior officers and the sort of prison officers spoke to me there regularly and they said, well, you know, what's going on? What's going on? And they were saying to me, you know, you've made a massive mistake, but you could turn your life around here. And, and they said, well, how can we make it easier? I said, I struggle with main wing. I do struggle with that. Yeah. Because like I said, I've never been someone who's ever been involved in fighting. I've never been involved in confrontation. You're almost like, I'm not designed to be here. In a, yeah, in a way, but I, I deserve to be there. But like like you said, I'm probably not designed, but I definitely deserve to be there. So I'm, like I said, I've never been a fighter. So they said, what about if we kept on healthcare? Because healthcare is a, a different sort of environment. I mean, you get the treatment from the nurse, you get your medication. And I was on tablets and just trying to cope with the mental health. And... They said, what about if you keep your hair? And I said, well, they said, we'll keep you for a few weeks and we'll see what happens. And I did really well. But then they said, we're going to try and put you back a normal wing. And I ended up in such a mess, like such a state, that they literally turned around and said, oh, okay, we're going to keep him here on healthcare wing. And it's even all... though he's stabilised, we're going to keep him here. And I did really well. And I ended up getting a job. Really? The, the orderly who's a... Who cleans the the wing and goes and picks up lunch and dinner from the the kitchen in the prison and brings it and serves the sort of other sort of prisoners? I ended up getting that job because the inmate got the orderly got released from prison 
and they said we need an orderly. So you're interested. So they was just 12 quid a week, which is good money in prison. Yeah. And um, I ended up staying on there for, you know, the time I was in prison. Oh, wow. So you think the sort of police officer said to you that at that point going, yes, you've made a mistake, but this isn't it. Yeah, it was more the, the senior prison officer who said that to me. Um, Do you think that resonated with you as such? Do you think that sunk in? Yes, I, I think it did, because they would sit down and talk to me for a long time, and they, you know, they would get to know me, and I've got so much respect for them through the prison officers. I mean, the job they do is unbelievable, uh, absolutely unbelievable, and I've got so much respect for them, and they, they really want to know you and get to know why it happened, how it happened. And prison life is very much a yo-yo. Talks people go in and go, come back, go out, sorry, go in, go out and come back in. Like I remember one mate, he was in three times in a month. Really? Three times in one month. Wow. He was like, he was like that. And they said... It's almost like back again. <laughs> what they said to me was, he said, I don't believe you'll do that, Mark. I think if you got released, you wouldn't come back. Yeah. Like you say, you're and not... I've, des- I've never gone back. Yeah. And so I, you I, knew you made a genuine, honest mistake yeah. that was out of character from all the alcoholism. Yeah. And you knew that you had to sort of pay the price and this was the best thing for you because this is going to teach you the real hard lesson. Yeah. And... It's amazing having this one person who you wouldn't have known at this time, it's just a complete stranger, just give you a little bit of hope and a little bit of sort of positivity and just say to you, you can turn your life around. And without him having to sit down like we are and having a deep personal conversation, just something positive like that, it's amazing the impact it can actually have on us, just one person to have a little bit of belief in us to go, yeah, you can do this. Yeah. And the other thing was church for me. I started going to church in prison. Did you? I mean, the, the beginning of it was to, you know, get out, my, get out my cell a bit more. You know, I think that's a common thing. Go, go to church, get out of the cell. Bit of socialising. Yeah, a little bit like that. But then I started wanting to go to mass like three times a week. And I actually got confirmed in the prison chapel. Really? Yeah. So even though I talk about Lithuanian being a Catholic, I, I, I was a lot more like a Christian, but I had sort of an understanding of the Catholic religion, but I actually got confirmed in Roman Catholic chapel in prison. So oh, when wow. I came out and when I got married shortly after, I had to get confirmation. They had to contact the prison to check that I'd actually been confirmed in the Catholic Church before I could get married in the Catholic Church. It was oh, crazy. Wow. But, yeah, for me, it was, you know, that was that played a big part of my life. The, the priest there was, you know. Did this sort of have an effect on the sort of the alcoholism you were struggling with beforehand? Did you sort of come to terms with that while you were yeah, in there? Yeah, I, did, I didn't even go looking for alcohol. I mean, you can find alcohol in prison if you want to, but I, I didn't go looking for it. So I had eight months, eight and a half months without touching alcohol whatsoever. So, But again, because I was a binge drinker, I think I probably could cope better. I mean, if I was drinking every day, I think a struggle would have been another level. And I feel for anyone who's who's drinks every day and has to go through something like that where they're probably looking for alcohol all the time. But I could cope without it because I was on the binge so it's almost like being arrested was the best thing that could have happened to you because oh, you sort of changed even though your... it took me another five years to get off alcohol completely yeah it yeah 100% it, it changed my life massively it made me think it made me think a lot for over the, the years and yeah it changed my life I'll never forget it but I'll, I promise myself I'll never go back did you have a pl- while you were in prison did you have a plan for what the future might be no I mean not really. I wanted to work in fitness, possibly. And I used to say to my mum, you know, maybe I'll do something to do with fitness when I come out. Do you reckon that was to do with the football sort of side? Yeah, possibly, yeah. Possibly. And I did. When I came out, I did end up going on a personal training course in a few months later and qualified as a PT. So I did go ahead and do that. So. And that's something positive to come out 
exactly. present with and start a, a sort of new chapter and a new leaf and how positive exercise is in the sort of environment you surround yourself with yeah. and the people you're with is a much more supportive community environment and was probably the best thing you could have done because like I say you surround yourself with the right people this time and you're trying to make yourself make those around you better so it's just leading down into the right channels exactly I, mean, I, bear mind, I was like reminded in prison I was convicted but I wasn't sentenced so I was due to be sentenced and I believe I'm pretty sure it was on my birthday on the so my birthday 2nd of October and I was during court and when, when you go to when you go to court they pick you you, you're taken out your cell at 6.30 in the morning. You pack all your stuff in a see-through prison bag and you're picked up at like 6.30 in the morning and taken, put on like a wagon, taken to court, and you'll sit there for four or five hours before you probably go up into court. Yeah. And I remember I was all suited to boot because my mum had bought a suit for me to wear to court and I had all my stuff in the bag. I was taken out of the cell. I was taken to the reception area and I was turned around and taken back. They said, you've, you've had your court appearance cancelled because they mm. want to do another report. And then, but they didn't tell me on that day, so I was like, Okay. And I knew I was being sentenced, so I think it was another month or so. I can't remember exactly what day it was. In November, I went back to court to get sentenced. And I'd had loads of reports done on mental health report, probation reports had been done, and discussed the, the triggers around what happened. And I remember I was sitting in court and the judge was sentenced to me and he was telling me about, you know, my crimes, what I'd done. And I'd been warned by my, a barrister that you're probably looking at six and a half years. Really? In prison time. So I had that in my mind. And as the judge was telling me, and, you, you know, telling me what he thought of me, etc. one word he used was however. And as soon as he however, I don't know if it's something clicked, but I, something, something happened. I was like, however, and I looked up at my mum and she had clicked on this word. I'm pretty sure she clicked on this word. And um, and he then he just started discussing... You know, the circumstances around it from my life, the reports of the mental health, it all stated that they don't think I should be in prison. I think he could turn his life around outside of prison. And the senior officer in prison, I didn't realize, had written on his own back a character reference to the court. Really? And this was, this was you know, this never happened. In life, this didn't happen, but he'd written his own character reference to the judge, stating that how well I'd done in prison, how well I'd turned my life around, how well I'd opened up and started talking about going to church regularly and not just doing it to escape but actually going there to you know to better myself and and that played a huge part it's amazing the kindness and the sort of yeah it's amazing the kindness someone can have yeah and amazing the impact just that one stranger doing one little good deed for the world can have such a positive and amazing impact on someone else's life exactly he didn't need to do that no 100 percent he could have literally been like, oh, it still really shocks care. me to this day that he done that because, he, like I say, he didn't need to do that. He never spoke. He never told me he was going to do that. He, he, did, would, he just did it off his own back. He was just saving grace. Yeah, exactly. And I got six month tag. Um, so around my ankle, I had a two year mental health order that I had to work with forensic and psychiatrists and um, yeah, occupational therapists, yeah. etc a two-year probation order and I had to attend court and go up but go up in front of the judge like every three months yeah just to, to, check, to in. check how I'm doing and that ended I think it was like three or four months before the end of the probation period because I was doing so well they just put up don't need to see him again and it's like I say it's amazing there's just one stranger that you've never met before he's just doing his job and exactly. it just goes to show that the people doing this job 
I don't think is exactly the most desirable job in the world. Mm. Like it doesn't scream to me like I want to go do that job, but the impact that they have in this world and the the better place they make it and the sort of deed and the justice they're doing this world, yeah, it's incredible exactly. and it's it's changed your life around forever. It's the same with probation. I mean, I work well with probation, and you know, at the time I was thinking probation. You know, at that time you're thinking, what's going to happen? It, you know, it's just going to be a lot of stress, etc. You're stuck in limbo, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. But, you know, their job, what they do is fantastic. I mean, I even coach them now who's a probation officer. And I'm like, my my hat goes off to her because all the job's... You know, not a patient, not probation officer, but in probation. And yeah. my hat goes off to her because I think the job you do is just different class. I mean, changing lives every day. It's exactly what we should aspire to do. Yeah. No matter what our job is, no matter what we do day to day, but to make this world a better place, I think it's just a simple mission that we should all aspire to be because like I said, it can change someone's life forever. So looking back at that sort of time in prison and everything that happened, what's your sort of reflections and things you learned in this time? I I think I learned the strength from, you know, from that built up within came from prison. I mean, being banged up that many hours in a, you know, a tiny little cell, and having maybe on healthcare, I had more time out myself, but generally you could have maybe two hours out cell a day, which isn't uh, a lot when you think not about really. it. And then you're stuck in that that cell normally with a cellmate, and you've got your TV, and that's it. That's, your, that's it, you're done for the day. So I think I built that strength from within, right? You know, because you've got to be strong to be in prison. People think prison's easy, and that, that, makes, that makes me. I hear about prison being easy, people say it, and I'm thinking, you've never been there. I hear people don't, laugh. Don't judge it. I hear people laugh and joke about it. You get, you get three meals a day, nice and cooked. You get your own bed to sleep in. You ain't got to pay no bills, no nothing. What an easy life. But. I, I, I get what they say, but and I, but it isn't like that at all. It's tough. It's really tough. You know, the amount of suicides that happen in prison throughout the year I mean, really? people don't even hear about that I mean that's the level it can get to people and I know people deserve to go to prison and I deserved my time in prison I did I did something wrong I deserved to be there but prison is not an easy life 100% and that's from someone who's been there in a, in a cat A prison I know it's not there are different levels of prison of course there are but from my seeing of it it's not an easy life and so you, you it's got... very hard to get out of that life hence the yo-yoing that people do Really? Yeah. Real tough environment to be in. A lot of people can't cope when they get out. So that's when they end up thinking that's their safety is to go back into prison. So that's they, know they, exactly what's to gonna, they know exactly what's going to happen each day. And they might be thinking, like you said, about the free meals, you know, I get a roof over my head because they haven't got that outside of prison. And they sort of have that routine day to day. They know exactly what's going on. Exactly. They're in a, quotation marks, safe environment yeah. as such for them. And say comfort, comfort yeah. I suppose. Yeah. So you talk about it's not get, easy getting outside. What sort of happened after out when you got out after sort of being released from prison? I really struggled emotionally when I came out of prison. I remember breaking down in front of my mum and her partner. I not really know what I was crying about, but I I just do, had to... do you think it was a sort of uh, that relief for you? Do you reckon that might be that why you had that emotional breakdown? Probably more the the realism of it all. You couldn't believe what you just been through. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't believe what I did originally. And what I've just been through, I couldn't believe it. And it's almost like you're in a movie at this point. Yeah, that you're exactly. like you, you, You're just on a constant roller coaster. And you're like, I just need a break. I just need just just chill out for just for a little bit yeah. and just sort of be a normal human being and such. 
Yeah, no, so exactly. So you had a lot of sort of breakdowns and emotional sort of struggle at this point. And how was the sort of alcohol side when you got out? Well, I started drinking again. I mean, like the binge and stuff. Like I say, I've been okay in prison because I was a binge drinker, but because I was still struggling when I, when I came out, I struggled to, even though I understood what had happened and what I've just been through, the drinking still... I was still drinking to forget certain things, so yeah. I ended up started drinking again, and not so badly, but you know I ended up doing a personal training course, which was I think it was like a six month course or something like that, eight month course. I had to go in and out of central London for. Yeah. So I wasn't drinking then because I was concert. I ran the marathon that year, the London marathon. Really? It's the only time I've ever done it. How did you find it? I couldn't walk the next couple of days. <laughs> I couldn't get upstairs. My knees were like concrete. I'm a terrible trainer like that, so. I wasn't even doing training. I was doing like three or four mile runs. So that was it. Just winged it. Yeah, literally. People say I do that about my life. I wing it sometimes. But, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they got a point sometimes. <laughs> but, I, um, but um, yeah, so I was running up and down the A40 in London, but, but only doing like three or four miles. It's and nothing in comparison, is it? I got it? up on the day and I thought I could run 26.2 miles, whatever it is. And um, yeah, I did it in like four hours, 40 minutes or something. Really? That's respectable. That's yeah. a real respectable time, considering you ain't done any training, no, really. No, it's crazy. <laughs> like I say, I winged it, I think, yeah. So, um, real positive thing to come out of sort of prison and do, though. It was, no, 100%. Something um, you'd, like, would you ever do that again? No? I, you know, I signed up for it the year after, and then I don't know what happened. I wasn't, um, I don't know, I didn't, in mental, I could do it. My brother did it instead. Really, and I know he struggled, but we both like we both done the marathons. I mean, still well, an accomplishment to do. Like, so wow! I, I run the last Flora London Marathon, so yeah. we were sponsored by Flora. That was the last one. Um, so it's two thousand and nine. Really, the London Marathon. Yeah. Wow, it's what an experience. I mean, I'm really excited to do mine in April, and I mean, I've been really training hard for it, and it's it's tough. So um, I hate to imagine how it'd be running one with very little training. I got to about twenty four miles without stopping. That's and good then, going. That's really good going. That you can't. It, the running goes, and you can't even run. It's, the brick wall hits, and you're yeah, just in a world of pain, like pulling your way through. <laughs> it's not running. I don't know what you're doing. It's just dragging. Yeah, I yeah. think that's probably the right word. Exactly. So, so still struggling with alcohol at this point, but nowhere yeah, near as bad. Because I was working like training as a PT, I think that helped massively because I was in that gym all the time. Yeah. So I think that played a massive part into me not training outside as well, even though it's a completely different sort of style of training. I think that helped massively. I think if I hadn't been doing that, I think I would have struggled massively. Do you think it's almost you didn't have the opportunity to drink? Like you probably had a lot of free time yeah, before. I was focused on getting my PT badges. So yeah. I knew obviously I couldn't drink. And I'm, I'm very much at the time about body images. And I was looking at all these people, you know, built like this. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm not built like this. I need to be. <laughs> I mean, I'm just a skinny whatever at the minute. I mean, but I was, I was thinking, if I start drinking, um, it's going to be even worse for me. So I, I was focused on not drinking and cutting out anything bad that I shouldn't be eating. It's amazing the environment you set yourself in, the impact that can have subconsciously and having that purpose as well for you, I suppose. Definitely. And then I was also thinking about that, you know, six months ago I was in prison and now I'm doing this course. My life is like this. <laughs> like a roller coaster. I don't know where I'm coming or going at the minute. <laughs> but an amazing change, no doubt. Yeah, 100%. So you went into personal training for a few yeah, years? Yeah, I worked for Fitness First. Okay. And I met my wife. Really? So my wife was one of my bosses in there. Oh, I wow. I never realised. Lithuanian. She was She was actually Lithuanian. And um, the- I, I thought, when I got there, when I first met her, I thought, oh, you know, you're like the, um, you know, when you're going to work and you're thinking, you ask her, is she, is she in today? Yeah, yeah. 
that that was she was that one that you think she you know like everyone be hiding from her have and goosebumps I'll be, I'll be hiding as well <laughs> I ended up marrying her it was, it was crazy it's amazing how like you say like having that Lithuania from Lithuania yeah. as well it's amazing the weird and wonderful ways as well works in oh, no, it's crazy. What's, what's the chance of that happening uh, especially the journey you've just been on you just come yeah, out of prison yeah. doing this PT course and then you meet your wife yeah. who's Lithuania when you play pro football in Lithuania yeah Crazy, it's bad. absolutely crazy. So you did personal training for a few years, enjoyed that. Yeah, I did personal training, um, and then like I say, when my so we had we had massive, so we, we lost a baby, and that, that so my drinking was probably more in control till we lost that baby, and then being strong at that time. So that was um, June thirtieth, two thousand and ten. Yeah. yeah, and we lost a baby, and it was that point where I had to be really, really strong for her that I. I focus on that and then about I can remember this you know in my mind we we used to live in a flat above the bank and our our garden was like on the rooftop of the bank yeah and my mum was there and we were we were talking on this rooftop and I couldn't even bring myself to smile or anything my face was like this and I know my mum was worried she was like Marty got to pick stuff up couldn't I was gone my mum was gone suddenly I was being strong for your partner at that time did that sort of tip you over the edge would you say yeah i yeah i think so because i felt so guilty and i and the reason i felt guilty was the the night before it happened my i said to her what do you want to eat and she oh i don't mind so and i she wanted something like fish and chips i said we go to that chip shop and she went um okay i said well we we'll go to it i think it's it's very nice here and she was like oh, well maybe she got the other one this is how it worked that conversation and we went to this one instead the one i said and we came home, we ate it, next day we lost baby. So do you think this... The guilt ripped through me, because I, in my mind, that's my fault, because I've done something wrong here. If you were like, we went to the other chip shop, yeah, that yeah, miss, exactly. that yeah, losing that, your baby yeah, might not have happened. that's taken me years and years to deal with, because I still think about that day, still think now, but I've, I learned to accept it, that I couldn't do anything about this. This It, put, it, it probably mean, happened before the chip shop. And it had nothing shop. to do with that. So yeah. I don't know if it was enough to do that bit, but in my mind, I don't think we used to go to mass every day. I stopped going to mass. She went to mass. I stopped completely. I didn't go to mass because I, I was also looking here, thinking, why? Yeah, why has this happened? I mean, to me, but it's happened to her. Did you almost have that victim mentality at the time? I think so, but I was more upset because it, it because of her, and it had happened to her. You cared and about it's her so her deeply. Body. It, it, you know, she's gone through everything. It's, she's gone through carrying a baby. It's her. It's her body. Yeah. And um, I couldn't deal with, like I say, being strong at that time and then having the funeral, etc. And I remember vividly, we lived in Uxbridge and, you know, they, the traffic stopped in the street as the, they carried like, the coffin down the street, or the casket, well, the casket. And, it, you know, you could see every people looking at us. That stays in my mind. And I was like... I mean, we shouldn't ever have to lose a, a kid yeah. in this lifetime, so I couldn't imagine the pain you went through. On that day, and yeah, so we named him Yukubus, so Yukubus was really Jacob in English, yeah, sort of thing. But then a year later, my Mattis was born, so um, wow, so yeah, he'd be 13 this year, wow. Now, I haven't seen him in many years, but um, but he to do with all the drinking, but like I said, he would have been, yeah, be 13 this year, and so I've always said, I'm, I'm you know, a proud dad of two boys, Mattis and Yukubus. So you should. So yeah. So you so should say that. In things like gloves and my shorts, I always wear. You know their date of birth, and people say, "Well, there's two numbers," and they, because they don't know about Yakuba so much. Yeah. They know about Matters because that's what I post all pictures about, 
that's what they see. Such a nice fit and touch that. Yeah, definitely. And it's good that you do that. Yeah. Because you do. I like ha- them close to me. That's a way of staying close to both of them, really, for me. Because so. you, you do have two sons. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of the life that we. Well, regardless, of, obviously, we lost the baby. It was still, you know, he's still a son. So he's still, he's still. Yeah. So I suppose that sort of triggered the drinking again. Yeah, yeah, massively. It, it, I couldn't deal Like you say, it wasn't just about you this time, it was about your partner and yeah. losing the kid. And yeah, and even more, I, mean, I never drank at home. Like, I'm a bit, you know, I won't lie, I'm dead honest. I, my son never ever saw me touch a drink because I never drank at home. It got to a point when I would disappear for binge yeah. and I'd come back after I, I was smashed. I Two suppose you don't want your son seeing you uh, in that state. Thing, yeah, I, I remember my childhood and yeah. I had morals. I knew that I had seen my, you know, experienced my dad drinking and the violence, etc. with him. You wouldn't want that for I, yours. That was the last thing I wanted. So I knew I was going to drink outside. I was, gonna, was never going to see anything. I was going to say, I suppose that childhood had a massive impact on you in the future, which yeah. clearly it has, the yeah. fact you haven't wanted to do that in front of your son. Yeah. and even, I didn't even have to think twice about that. Do you know what I mean? I just, I was, just when I drunk, I drunk outside. It was subconscious. Yeah. It was that thing of, like I say, it, it comes back down to the morals. Mm. This you drinking isn't necessarily you. No. It's just out of character. It's this sort of flight or flight response. It's that stress coping mechanism. Yeah. You don't choose addiction. I mean, addiction comes for many different reasons, but you don't choose addiction. Did so. you sort of spiral at all with when this alcoholism? Yeah, I mean, over the years... And I, I got to a point where I sold my own, I sold my own wedding ring for cash. Really? For drink. Got I that got bad? 30 quid for it. And that was a level I got to. I sold some of my wife's jewellery and I got some back. And this is completely open. I've never been so open like that. But I, I actually appreciate sold, my friend. I sold my wife's jewellery for cash. Even I love my wife so, so much. And I'm, I'm, I live with the regret of, you know, our marriage ending. But that was the levels it got to. That's what addiction does, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. people don't realise that. They think alcohol, alcohol or, or drugs or anything is easy to get off, but they don't realise the, the levels it can go to. And the effect it can have on other people exactly. and relationships yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's, you started to really sort of spiral again? Yeah, I spiraled. Um, I split for my wife and ended up in a flat. So I had my own sort of flat. And I was drinking every day. Every day. Literally all the time. And I was in there being assessed by police for mental health. No risk of suicide, anything. You know, you know, he's on that spiral and he's not getting off it at the minute. And I remember a time when my mum turned up my flat and she hadn't heard from me for like 24 hours or something like that, which she said was unusual. And she knocked on my flat and she could hear me in there, but she, she said it took forever for you to open the door, like forever. Like, yeah. hour, not hours, but minutes and me, no, for you to open the door. And she said, when you opened it, you were foaming at the mouth and everything. She said, you didn't recognise me. Wow. You were absolutely foaming at the mouth. You had lost your... The night before, my phone had gone. I have no idea where my phone was, but I had, it was like a blackout. I couldn't remember what happened in that period. And she said it took forever for to, to get me dressed, to get me in the car to her house. And I started hallucinating. I was in the garden, in her house, and I was seeing these two women. And I've said that another time, but I was seeing these two women, and I was convinced I was seeing them. And my mum's talking to me, and as you, this is from her saying she's talking to me, but I could see these women. And it ended up with her calling out 24-hour mental health crisis team to come to the house. They came to the house while I was having this hallucination. And all my mum kept saying was, I need to get a sleeping tablet down. I need to get him to sleep. I don't think he slept. He needs to sleep. And they, they said, we can try and take him in. 
And she said, I just need to get tablets down. And we tried, and she got one tablet down, had no effect. She managed to get another tablet down to me. And I know this is, I'm 30 something, and my mum's laying next to me in bed trying to get me to calm down and get to go to sleep because she knew she had to get me. You know, she brought my my sister's now husband, she called him to the house and said, I don't feel safe. I need someone else here as well, because I'm not sure how he's going to react. How his mind is. And that's a scary time to think, you know, I think back, think what my mum went through. I mean, seeing her own son like that, that sort of state. Just goes to show the yeah. amazing woman your mum is, oh, though. Yeah. And that motherly instinct. They know that something's not right. They know what they need to do. It's almost like they have all the answers. Yeah. And I can never put up, put a finger on it with my mum. She just knew all the answers about everything. Yeah. And it's almost like they've got their own sort of Google, like, sort of search in their head in this situation what do I need to do here's your answer mum will go do it and it, it sounds like your mum did the exact same thing is if she didn't do that that night God knows what could have happened to you exactly so. exactly is yeah what was the turning point for you I because I hadn't seen my son in that that six months I've been drinking every day I've been and I've been taken to hospital because I had, had major problems with my liver they were, they were diagnosing liver disease and stuff like this for my liver yeah. I was taken to a hospital in um, in Houston, I can't remember the name of the hospital. My wife came up and said, "Your your husband's got to stop drinking because he's doing probably half a litre litre of vodka a day now. Really, he's that bad for this wow. six months without he's drinking every day, all day. And if he doesn't stop drinking, he'd be max, he'd be dead dead in a year, six Re- months to a year, he'd be finished. Really, and got that bad? Yeah. And my wife said to me, Mark, your son will drink up to you, sort of thing." And she sat me down. She would tell you, and I hadn't seen her in six months. She could have been fuming with me, really angry. But she was like, that's your choices. So I went cold turkey. And yeah, I slipped up once. And then I went back to the cold turkey. And um, so, yeah. So April 1st this year, it'll be 10 years since I touched, since I touched alcohol. What an, accom- what an accomplishment. And it's crazy to think the time, I mean. And you've done so much in those 10 years yeah, as well, I haven't mean, you? Look at the football. I yeah, mean, we'll touch on that in yeah. a bit. But yeah, 10 years, like that's a... Considering the place you've come from and all the things you've been through, not a lot of people would be in the situation you're in today or would have even changed their life about. Yeah, I'm... Like I say, I'm, I'm quite humble. I mean, I don't... I see it as a really big thing, but... So you should. Yeah, I, I know, but... You know, you think about it and you think back over life and I think, well, what happened? But then 10 years, it's like a... It's like a being reborn, I was, reborn. I was going to say, yeah, the, the reborn. This is yeah. your sort of childhood again, yeah. and this is your life you should have lived. Yeah. If all these sort of pre things didn't happen, it's di- and it's difficult now. I mean, I don't get offered opportunities because of my past and mud sticks in life generally, unfortunately. But that's what happens. But you can only deal with the cards it, you've been dealt with yeah, in life. It is what it is. I mean, I, I try to do the best I can now. And it, yeah, it's, it's not going badly, so it's going well. It's amazing the impact that kids can have on you. Yeah. And it sounds like if those kids weren't here today... Well, I haven't seen my son in six and a half years. I mean, this year will be seven years. And yeah. that is because of not just alcoholism, because I had given up. Like, I've been sober like two two years before. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't seen him for that long. So, But for me, the biggest thing now is making sure my mum's proud of me and making sure my son's proud of me. Which, yeah, they're, they're the two biggest things for me in life. And which, that's why I do everything I do. Which I'm sure they are completely yeah. proud of you 
and all the amazing things you're doing and the amazing impact you're having on this world. And I see a lot of your stuff on Instagram and all the people that uh, I speak to other people that you've sort of coached and who know you and it's only positive and amazing things. Um, Like I said, having those kids really were the sort of luck almost in some sort of way that they were your saving grace. And do you say about the opportunities and the lack of that people were turning you away because of your past who gave you the opportunity because a lot of people have mixed views on this sort of organization should we say but there was one point where they gave you an opportunity and this is the reason why you're here today so my football journey started i mean so when i go about the drinking i you know i thought you know i want to go back into football i mean that's that's massive for me so i spoke to my local semi-pro football club in london tigers they were called in greenford area they're based and i emailed the secretary and i said look you know i've played here i've you know, I've coached there, you know, etc. I want to, well, mainly played, but I want to get back into football. I said, is there any opportunities at London Tigers to just come down and just maybe do a little bit? So he, he emailed me back and said, come down on Saturday, come and watch the team, speak to the, the gaffer and the assistant. So that's what I did. So I turned up, I spoke to him, and they said, look, this is my background, this is what I've done. You know, I just want to be in and around the football team. You know, money, I'm not bothered by money. I've never, never been bothered by that. Clear transparency as well. You're yeah. being open and honest with them, and I suppose that would have probably attracted you to them. Yeah. So he said to me, "We've only got like a couple of games left. It was like end of the season." But I said, "Well, I'll come out in pre-season." So he said, "Why don't you? We run a summer league. We we enter a summer league and play throughout the summer." He said, "Do you want to play?" I said, "All right. <laughs> Why not?" So I ended up playing for six weeks in this summer league for London Tigers, and then I went back into pre-season and I signed up as a you know, not as a number one, but I didn't want to be any first choice keeper, but I was like setting off for desperate measures. I was going to go and go, you know, I'm yeah. 30, whatever now. Considering the injury you had as well. Yeah, exactly. prior, yeah. Your playing career, you thought that was, that was done null and void. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, I only played for that summer league. I didn't end up playing for the team for the season because I, I had the preseason and I, and I thought I left the club. But um, anyway, so I had preseason. I did a bit of coaching, was there for two or three games. And I, then I started struggling a little bit more with staying off the alcohol, so I thought, do you know what, I need to just time to focus on myself. But that gave me my love back in the game, because I saw that small little period, I thought, loved it. It's that exposure again. Yeah. So I didn't get involved with the club till the next summer, because I watched a lot of football through the time when I was you know, beat, you know, beating the ball. And um, I saw an advert in my local paper saying, Maidenhead United Women, and we're looking for a goalkeeping coach yeah. in women's football. And I thought, no, no. This is, my, this is how I entered women's football because I thought, okay, why not? I'll, I'll give it a go and see what happens. So I contacted this number and I had this sort of interview in a leisure centre in Bracknell with the gaffer and the assistant. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're really keen to have you on board. I was like, okay. So we come down for a session. And I was like, fine. But before I came down the session, all the, the, the gaffer had left. So they suddenly had no manager, they had the assistant and they were recruiting a new sort of coach to him, a new manager. Yeah. And funny enough, I knew the manager who came in. I knew him already. Yeah. So, we're not, we're not close, close, but we knew each other, we knew each other's names, etc. It's a small world, the football yeah. world. So I came in, it was the first season, maybe just first season in the, the, the newly formed FA Women's Premier League, it was called it then. Yeah. 2015, in the summer, the pre-season. And I had two years there. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Women's football is incredible, um, isn't it? The keeper I was working with, the, the, well, the, I worked with two or three keepers, but they're all class. But like I said, the, the number one was, you know, I, I talked to them, still friends with her now. I mean, I've talked to her, I'm still playing at 
sort of, you know, that high level and she could have gone so far. And I was like, I got so much of a buzz out of doing that in sessions every week. So rewarding, isn't it? Yeah. So I had two years there and then I went, I had a little bit in semi-pro football again, coaching. Then I went out to India and yeah. coached in India. And, you know, the head coach was Terry, Terry Feeling, played for Chelsea, Man City in the Premier League, Republic wow. of Ireland World Cups. David James was at, was the gaffer. Really? He was, he was head coach, he was the gaffer. What was he like as a coach? Class, man. Really? Yeah, proper class, proper class. I had two, so I went to Delhi first, different team, and then I went to this academy where, where like, say, Terry Feeling was, like, top Director of football, yeah, that was, that was your role. Yeah, yeah. And now, um, I nearly got nearly went out there again. They offered me different roles over the years, but I've never gone back to India. But I like to go abroad again, that's one ambition for me. Yeah, to, is to coach abroad, not not do any mentoring or just coach, coach, yeah, yeah coach. But I'm, I've got to be on 143 this year, so I'm thinking I've done it 10 years now, nearly football coaching. Don't, don't give it up, no, my no, friend. I won't, I won't give it up, no, but but it's definitely. An ambition, ambition to get out abroad again, coach. Do it. Just do the coaching. Yeah. So why hopefully, why hopefully not? Comes at some point. Yeah, I'm sure opportunities will come yeah. your way because I mean, you just got to keep putting yourself out there like you have, and opportunities keep coming your way. So you went abroad and coached for a little bit. Yeah, and then I came back and I spoke to Cheshire United ladies who were the same league as major. So it's like tier four women's football in this country. Yeah, it's like league two equivalent of the men's. Yeah, 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 exactly. So and it changed a lot. I feel women's national league now they call it. Yeah. So I had four years at Chesham. Well, how was your time there? Um, again, class. I mean, the keeper, and she won't mind me saying this. I mean, the, the keeper, and I, I got told she was, she's Italian, and she's a, quite a fiery Italian. Yeah. And, you know, I, the gaffer said, you can come in and see how you get on, you know, hopefully you get on very well, you know. She was <laughs> a bit like, I was like, she was a bit worried about this, but I came in and I thought, okay. And me and the keeper got on from like house of five day one yeah she does joke to me that she got told to behave on the <laughs> but the, just level, clicked. the levels we reached in that season was unbelievable i mean i was getting comments from people who are at national level saying you know who's this keeper i mean she's at that level what have she, you done with her <laughs> yeah exactly she was like in the thirties, but she was she was just absolutely just on flames. Just the levels. I mean, they talk about partnerships in football. I mean, you need to have that partnership, especially as a co- goalie coach and your keepers. You need to have that tightness. If you don't have that, then I was going to say I've got another a goalkeeping coach. You know, Dees Kerrison. When yeah, I when yeah, I've worked with yeah. him, he's always spoke about the importance of the GKU, the goalkeeper union. Oh, it's the biggest family in football. And it, I don't understand it because I'm not a goalkeeper coach myself, but I can just. All these goalkeeper coaches talk about the GKU, the GK yeah, union. It's everything. And yeah, it's. Because you've got to be built different to be a goalkeeper, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you, this has got to be different. Your mind's got to be different. What's that sort of goalkeeper union family like? Does it stem not just from the sort of club, but to sort of more league basis, like national basis? Like, I, is I it just? Think, a, I would think it's worldwide. Would I you mean, say it's just a, like a, a mutual respect in that there, there admiration? Is, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I know Dees is class, class coach, class guy, and um, there is that neutral. There is always going to be that neutral respect. I mean. And that's what like I say throughout the world. If you're a keeper, you have that neutral respect. If you're a keeper coach, you have that neutral respect. Do you reckon it's because you understand what that goalkeeper has to go through and Honestly, be I, like? I, yeah, I think so. And I think, and I'll be honest, in my opinion, anyone outside of the goalkeeper unit probably doesn't understand it fully because obviously they've never under they've never played in that position. They don't understand the mentality, the mentality side of it. And it's a whole new world, isn't oh, it? It's a, different, it's a completely different world. But so, the tightness of it is unreal. So you really enjoyed your time. Coaching women's football. Loved it. So, like I said, I went from there. So I had four years at Chesham. 
and then went to drop down to Abingdon United last year, a league below. Yeah. But they had that ambition to be a national to, league. To club, national league. Which they are now. They are. They, yeah. That, that last season is probably the best as a oh as, in a club environment, not in like an individual, but as a club environment. What they achieved was unreal. I mean, they they went for I think their last nine games where they had to win. They had to win, couldn't drop any points. Yeah. They won every one of their last nine league games without conceding one goal. Wow. That, that that's man. an accomplishment and that for a goalkeeping coach it that's a dream yeah the mentality side of it changes from a keeper who maybe conceded seven you've got to suddenly change it around to a keeper if they haven't conceded a goal in eight games suddenly they concede one they can be devastated so my job comes changed completely because I've got to change they could win 16-1 and yeah. the emphasis would be why well, have you conceded goal. that one goal even uh, if that especially when they haven't conceded for eight games or nine games so that one goal could be devastate them I suppose it almost flips into that they say you've gone six, seven games without conceding a goal. Does it ever tip over to that stage of I could concede a goal because it's been so long? Well, that's, that's that's what I mean. That's what that was my that was my that's what my sort of job role changed because it gone from them conceding maybe six, seven, five. What then? That, I thought that's not going to happen. So you almost turn into like a psychologist. Yeah, yeah. As I, well. I, was, I had to prepare myself for that one goal that could happen at any time. So you were at Abingdon and so then at Abingdon, we won the league, smash the league. Um, and that's like I said a highlight of my coaching career winning something that's the first league I've ever team where they've won something like that and not only that but nine games unbeaten yeah I'm sure, it was, nine, goal. I'm sure it was nine or ten it was def- definitely nine it might have been ten where they, they won every single league game and didn't concede a goal it's not bad and going. the keepers levels from every game were at the highest point they never dropped their levels. well I mean you clearly are doing something right because you went to Chesham you're getting comp- compliments about the goalkeeper about how the level she was at then you go to Abingdon in nine, ten games, clean sheets. That's just any league. That's unheard of. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it, that's just, like I say, it's crazy. I mean, and like, things like what happened at Chesham in the first season and Abingdon last season. I mean, I had a interview for a job in the Women's um, the women's La Liga. Yeah. And a few months ago, and I, I turned it down at the time because I, I thought I got offered and I turned it down. So it's helped me get other offers in coaching. But I need to, for me as a person, I need to be the right time. And it wasn't the right time, but it's, it's you know. Not only that, if you're enjoying what you're doing, that far outweighs sort of other opportunities as such. Because, like I said, what's the point doing something if you don't enjoy it? No, exactly. And there's certain things that go on my CV. I mean, the first thing, I mean, that season, the first season I had at Chesham, maybe the first thing that goes on my CV with that keeper. It's the first thing I write down. Really? I've got another keeper that's out in America that I've worked with for a year and a half or so. She's another one that's one of the first things I go on my CV because that's because of the levels they're at. I do want to touch on women's football. Yeah. Why for you coaching women's football? What is it about women's football? What do you think they, about they women's football? They want to learn. They want to learn. Um, I think in men's football, there's too many egos and I'm, I'm, I'm the one to admit it. You know, when we're playing, we think we're the best. Whatever level we are, not everyone, but there's a majority of players think, you know, we should be Premier League. Yeah. And that's what, and in, Women's football don't see that. They put the work in, don't they? Yeah, they put they the work really in do. and they want to learn, they want to listen. And they're always asking questions because I've coached for a few years in women's football, yeah. been in the National League scene as well, and all the players are so spectacular. There's just such amazing characters, so many amazing characteristics about all of them. And there's a, as a, a select few that I've never seen trainers like them. No. It's like a couple of players that are still in touch with now. They don't just put the work in training. Not just before and after, but it's then like going away and like they're almost like pestering your phones, like, what can I do here? They're sending you yeah. analysis videos and it's just like 
it's a willingness and their want and their drive to learn and be better. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. And no. I think that's what people don't really appreciate and understand about women's football no, is no. that extra willingness. And like you say, that they're wanting to learn. Um, why, why, do people, why do you think people have an issue with a women's game? Because there's still stigmas kicking around and it, the game is growing exponentially and rightfully so. Why do you think people still have an issue with it? It's a mentality thing for me. I mean, mentality, maybe a generation thing. There's always people in clubs that will go, oh, women shouldn't play football. They shouldn't do this. And I never understood it. And you've always got to be careful how you word it, but there is that mentality thing where they they think women shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that. And it's not just in football. It's It's all different things in life. It should... I think it's also like they are growing at such an exponential, the game is growing at such an exponential rate. Yeah. Rightfully so, like I say. And I think people are almost getting jealous of that, of they're getting these opportunities yeah. where they're growing and they're, they're flourishing. And they're like, why, why is that not me? Mm. And I think that's what it really comes down to. And it comes on TV and you have people make these comments and just like, that's not right. They deserve these opportunities. And they put, like I said, they put the work yeah. in. People, unless you're involved in women's football, I don't think people really appreciate just how amazing the game is and how amazing the people involved and how driven and willing they are. And women's football is still growing, but there's still not a lot of money involved, even at national league level. And there's no money involved. There's no money in it. There's no money. You coaches, there's no money. Players or teams are still paid to play at our level. Some teams. It's crazy. Paying to play at, at this level. And you look at like men's league one, league two. Yeah. They don't pay to play. And what I say about people who say that women shouldn't play football, I always say a lot of them players would run circles around you with a ball. Yeah. Quite easy. I mean, look at the level they're playing at. And I mean, I'm at Tony down, I'm loving it. And the two keepers there, I mean, it shows one of the keepers I worked with at Chesham. I helped bring her into senior football. And, you know, she wanted me there. So even that is enough for me that, you know, players are pulling me, you know, come here, come and train with us. It's massive for me because they want you to be there as well. But I'm, I'm loving, I'm loving that. But like I say, it's the level, you know, these players, and these players are playing because they love it as well. It's not, it's not a job to them. You know, it's not like League Two, League One, and men's football where it's all about the money still. Yeah. Getting paid. What, what contract can you get? How what many, was the how best many thousand still a week at that level still? Um, it's not about that. It's about enjoyment for these girls. You definitely encourage people to get involved in women's football. 100 percent, hundred percent. It's a different world. I think you've got to have. I think you've got to be able to. In yourself, got you understand that there are certain things that are different. Obviously, you can't say certain things that you would do in men's football, and you, you know, you can't say that in women's football. You've got to take a different approach, almost like a yeah. p- player by player approach. No, I don't not... think it's for everyone. I think you've got to have the right mentality to be able to work in women's football. Because well. there's a lot of people that come over from the men's game mm. that try and coach in women's football, and they'll Fail. act, yeah, yeah, miserably. Yeah, I've I've known a couple of people that have come over to the women's game who have done an alright job in men's football, like at a reasonable level, yeah. quite a high level. And people just hate them. They'll just come across and try and do the same things they did in men's football. Yeah. And within months, gone. Yeah. And people will look at this person because yeah, their qualifications and where they've been, go, they'll do a job because they've done it in men's. Mm-hmm. And they'll come across and all you hear is bad words about this person and they'll just fail because they don't take the personal approach and they don't actually get to understand the, the women's game because the sort of individual needs are so different. Yeah, But is. I think from my personal experience, it's just such a an amazing environment to be in in such a positive environment to be in and it's so rewarding 
so so rewarding and it's probably been one of my highlights of my life so far is coaching in women's football uh, I could I couldn't see myself coming out of women's football. I mean, I really couldn't. And if I if I do, I'll probably be retiring for coaching because I wouldn't want to go back. Yeah, I might. I've had offers like recently to go back into men's semi pro, and I and then I had an offer in the women's game, and that's more of a pull to me. Yeah. So I can ne- I'm not going to ever say no to men's, but I can't see myself ever leaving women's. And like I say, if I had to leave women's football, I probably would end up just doing like the the talent ID stuff, and I wouldn't. Coach, probably. Talk to me about the talent ID. How did that come about? Because so you've done out, national that... scouting for quite a few years. You've just had another opportunity come up recently, yeah. haven't you? Um, yeah, tell me more about us, talent ID, how you got into that. So it comes from one of the gaffers that I work for in India who now works for UEFA. And the first job he he sort of recommended me for was working for Argentina in the 2019 World Cup. So before it started, it, the Cup held in France, before that started, I was travelling up to Scotland to do uh, opposition reports and t- on certain players as well. So I scouted for the first their f- three uh, group fixtures. Yeah. And so that was my first sort of sort of job in sort of... Exposure yeah. into that. And then I worked for Chile in the Olympics. Really? Did a report, same sort of thing for them. Wow. Um, Iceland in the last, in the Euros. Yeah. And then, so that, again, that was me travelling up and down north, looking at different games throughout the Euros for Iceland. Wow. And then I did some work for Senegal as well in the World Cup qualifiers before the last World Cup for the women's football, all in women's football. And obviously I've, I've had links, I've been out to different countries. I'm, you know, get involved now in a national country as well. And I'm also, I'd like to say, I've just taken, been offered a role with Lille women who are the top level in France, so... I mean, you're clearly getting your name out there and clearly exactly. making an impact. Yeah. You're clearly doing a good job. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? I was out in France in December and, you know, so it's even it's not about the money, but it's the opportunity to go out there and even though I'm getting paid for it, it's still the opportunity to go out there and experience, you know, these world-class facilities at top-level clubs. And and we talk so happily about all these amazing opportunities and memories you've yeah. done and all the experiences you've been through. This is off the back of things people would not come through mm. people would still be in that life or maybe not potentially here and people wouldn't believe i mean yeah i mean when i started talking on instagram on social media they were like oh, i never knew anything like that about you and i said well yeah because the whole reason i talk is to encourage others to talk about things you know there's no we shouldn't be ashamed to talk so that's why i do it and she well, i said we know nothing about that part of your life and, and I, I repeat myself because I don't. I want people to remember, not forget. And this is why I wanted to get you on because yeah. you've been through the lowest of the lows and the worst of the worst. Yeah. Yet you're still here, bettering yourself, having all these opportunities. That even I'm like, how are you still going from one amazing gig to another amazing gig, coaching from one amazing club to an international level? It's almost like, even from a person that hasn't had a past, you'd be like awe inspired at doing these experiences and having all these jobs yeah. and you're doing this off for sort of all the things you've done and the people want to get on this podcast i want them to be like yourself where mm. you've been through your worst day and now you're literally every day living your best day and trying to inspire and help other people because i know a couple of like goalkeepers you've coached and a couple of players you've coached and they only say how inspiring you are and how amazing character you are and um danny hole yeah was a reason yeah. that we sort of got in yeah, touch yeah. she said to me uh, I think she recommended my podcast to you. Yeah. And then we started talking. Yeah. And then, yeah, I just looked at your Instagram. We started talking a bit more. And I was like, 
I need to get this guy on my podcast because he's going to make a difference. And honestly, today's conversation has been incredible. Um, one thing I want to touch with addiction is a sort of helplines. Yeah. And how did you sort of get the help to be clean and be 10 years now sober almost? What would you recommend to people struggling with addiction? I know there's not one shoe fits all as such. However, what sort of advice would you guide people towards? I mean, I attended AA meetings for a little while. They didn't fully work for me, but I felt they were a really good start. I mean, I went with a, who, an old friend who, who took me to meetings and he had struggled with addiction, but had been dry a long time. I used to come along and listen to other people's stories. I was never one to talk. I never, you know, AA, you know, everyone, you choose to talk or not. I was never one to share my story in there, but I think it helped a lot and it does help you share or listen and realise that you're not alone. And you can share if you want to, and people won't judge you. So I recommend AA. I do recommend it. It's not for everyone, but I recommend it. Samaritans is something different, but you know, if people want to talk, Samaritans is perfect for that. And they will listen to anything. They're never going to judge you. I go to Samaritans still. It's almost anonymous. Yeah, yeah. In some yeah, sense. Exactly. And biggest thing I say, talk to anyone. I mean, I've talked. I've talked to random people. I remember when I was really bad, and I, I went all the way down to Newquay in Cornwall, and I sat in a pub. I was drinking. And there was this guy out there, never met him before, and I just started talking. I started talking to this random fella, and he could have just told me where to go. But he sat in that, that pub garden, talking for an hour. Really? And encouraged me, and I ended up going back home, travelling all the way back, because he had encouraged me to, well, you know, what you're doing sort of thing. So I always say talk to anyone. It's whenever I go into a shop, it's that sort of person served me at the tills. I'll always try and leave their day better than when I first walked yeah. in. I'll always try and have a nice conversation with them and make them feel better about themselves. Yeah, and right. it's amazing if you just give someone the time of day each and every conversation, you just don't know quite the positive impact that could have on that person yeah. because they could be in their worst day right now and you could just give them a little bit of hope just from this random conversation that you have sort of no entitlement to and no sort of reason to. Yeah. And just being that sort of friendly face and, Sometimes people just want someone to listen. Exactly. I mean, I've always said I, I will, I'll talk to anyone. If anyone's going through anything, I've shared it on Instagram many times. I say, if anyone's going, message me. You know, whatever the problem is, I won't judge you. Just, just talk to me. I might not have all the answers, but it's best to talk. And then if you, you know, I can advise you on different, you know, different ways to get help as well, but I will talk to anyone. So whatever time I know, if it's through the night, as soon as I read that message, it will be a priority for me to get back to that person. Yeah. That'd be my priority. Whatever I've got going on, that'd be the first thing I do. So if it's a three or four in the morning and I haven't seen it, first thing I'm, first time I see it, bang, I'll respond. Because a problem shared is a problem exactly. solved. A problem and shared I, is a problem halved. It doesn't bother me if I'm late for something. It doesn't worry. That's a priority to me. So whoever it is, that would be their priority to me. We are simply here to sort of have an impact and be there for other people because we've been through our worst day and we're only here now to help spread the message of breaking these stigmas, having these conversations that it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, exactly. Don't give up because you've been through quite your worst. But actually, my sort of favourite analogy is when there's a storm, there's always a rainbow at the end of, yeah. of the storm, but you've got to go looking for that that rainbow, sorry. Yeah. And the more you look for that rainbow, the longer it stays and the longer it continues to stay. Mm. Whereas if you're in the storm and you're like, when's that storm going to end? The storm will probably just stay for a lot longer. One other thing I'll say quickly is is the the person one of the people I opened up the organisation was the football association. It took me a year to get cleared to work in, 
in sort of youth football. Um, and I, when I went there, I, they asked me to explain all about my my things up, the criminal side of my life and my football career. And they said to me, it took them a year to clear me, but they said to me, because of your experience and because of who you are and because of how you change, we will give you that opportunity. And I'm forever grateful to them because I, they allowed me to open up to them completely. I've never met this lady before and I'm opening up completely, I was. At Wembley, it was at Wembley Stadium, looking over Wembley, over the, the actual stadium itself, and talking to this lady about the ins and outs of what I've done, ins and outs of football, and without them clearing me, I wouldn't be where I am now. I suppose that's, I quite, a, work. I suppose that's quite a surreal moment for you, being at, at Wembley, you're looking out onto the pitch, yeah. especially with the background you come from and all the things you've been through, to be in Wembley Stadium, which is the home of England football, yeah. to that day sort of have your name cleared and have that DBS come through and be open and honest with your journey. I suppose that was almost like a pinch me moment oh, where hundred percent. I bet you look back on today going, that was a day where I think everything changed for me. Yeah, hundred percent. And I know for a fact, and they've, they've reminded me all the time is that if you were to ever make a mistake though, and go back to anything, your career's finished. That's it. Your That's a, that's also something that I've got, always got in my mind that, I can never, will, and can never touch the drop of alcohol again, because I've got. I'm doing working in an industry. I absolutely, it's my world. And and what a job you're doing as well, exactly. by the way. And I could easy, I could lose it that easily. So that's enough for me to be. You know what? I'm going to take every day as it as it comes and enjoy every moment. And not only that, like kudos to you for this time because it took like a year to get you cleared. Yeah. In that year, you could have just been like, nah, not for me. If you want to yeah. wait a year, then it's not and, for me. And Chesham as well. I mean, the, the manager at Chesham was like, she, they even wrote references as well. They had to write references. So she knew about my past and she knew that we're going to give this guy a chance. So it took the whole season. I was working with the seniors before I could work with youth players. And, you know, players wouldn't know that, but obviously wouldn't have known all about that. But the managers and the staff would have known that we were waiting for him to be cleared. Giving someone a chance yeah, exactly. and having that patience to... Give someone that chance. That's massive. Um, yeah, a few questions yeah. I want to finish on. Would you change what you've been through? No. No? No, because it's maybe who I am today. I mean, I might have taken a different path, but looking back on it now, I wouldn't have changed it because I wouldn't be sitting here now sharing my story with you. I wouldn't have been working in football and had all these opportunities, working in women's football, etc. without going through all that in my past. I wouldn't have the, the mental strength that I have today without going through my past gives you a new perspective on it life does. as well yeah, right from my you know the first early years of my childhood i wouldn't it's made me who i am today so no i wouldn't change it what are you most proud of from your life so far my son well both both but you know obviously matches is here now and and he's the one i want you know when i eventually get to see him i want him to see how well i'm doing i'm you know that that's that's yeah which my I'm son. sure that day will come, yeah, yeah. especially with the path yeah. you're sort of leading down to at the minute. You're only going up I'm here. Proud, I'm proud of my mum as well. I mean, my mum's like I say, she sticks by me. She's just unbelievable. What a my warrior. Brother, my brother and sister as well, put them alongside. I mean, I put them through hell and they stick by me. And It's what know. true family does for yeah, you. It's through, through your worst day, they're there supporting you, not 100%. fighting you. 100%. They're just there to be a safety blanket and help you be the person you... They know who you are. Yeah. Um, what are your hopes and dreams for the future? Um, I say I want, I want to be in football as long as I can, as long as possible. Like I say, I want, I want to coach abroad and coach and not do the channel ID, but obviously that's another thing I want to 
you know, stick with the talent ID, but I still want to, wherever it is, I want to go to a developing country, not a country like, that's already, you know, women's game is really high already. I don't want that. I want to go somewhere like... Build it up. Yeah, build up somewhere, maybe in Asia and Africa, where they're still developing in certain countries. I want to go there and make a difference. Still quite behind in the sort yeah. of understanding of it. For me, it's making a difference. And that's, that's you know... Do you yeah. feel that's your mission? I think so, yeah. That's that's the reason... What is your mission in life now? In, in football, it's about... Jet- Goalkeeping's in my life, so it's about developing keepers and helping you know make chances for them. I, you know, I gave up. I had another job when I was at Aberdeen, like a full time job. But I quit that job to help them keepers and help them, you know, try and do my bit to help them win the league. That was my priority. Yeah. The job was okay, probably a little bit of a mistake, but yeah, I need you the money, but yeah, not everyone would understand that, you know, but for me. It makes sense. As long as it makes sense to yourself, yeah. doesn't matter what yeah. anyone else thinks. Exactly. Only you know what's best for you. Exactly. And that's that. Um, if you could leave the younger generation one piece of advice, what would it be? Just do the best you can. I mean, you need to do the best you can. Don't don't quit. You know, you you're gonna get lots of no's in life. You will do. You get lots and lots of no's, but never never give up on your dreams because they can happen at any stage of your life. So whether you're fifteen, sixteen. 20, 30, 40, they can still happen, but you've got to put the work in. As long as you put that work in, then you're putting 110% in all the time. And that's why I always say to the goalkeeper, I say, you see me for two hours, put, give me everything, um, everything of your life, give me in that hour, and then you get to go home anyway. <laughs> just give me that time. So, yeah, you just got to keep going. Whatever battles you live with, they don't last forever, and they won't last forever, so you will get through it. I love that. That's amazing. And finally, what is your definition of an able lifestyle? Definition of an able lifestyle? Well, that's a, that's a question. <laughs> by, biggest thing is by believing in yourself. You have to believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, you're never going to get anywhere. I mean, you can have all the doubters in life, and you will get a lot of doubters. But if you believe in yourself, you can... You can you can live that full life. You can get anywhere you want to, but you know, in the end, it's down to you. It's not down to anyone else. It's down to you. So the belief has to be there. Without the belief, life is it's going to be non-existent in a way. You need to you need to believe in yourself. I mean, the belief is everything. So as long as you have that belief, I believe you can do anything you want to do in life. Literally amazing that and where can we find you where can we find all your content how can we get in touch with you uh coach by the goggles is instagram's my main thing that's the only thing so coach by the goggles is my account i you know coaching mental health i talk about everything i talk about life so that's where to catch me yeah mark thank you very much for today i know it's going to have an amazing and massive impact on the wider community and I'm really looking forward to hearing what people say about this episode. Thank you for your time today. You have been an absolute star. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.